0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are continuing the Tulip series, and I just want to make sure... I should have looked before I started recording, but you know, you start realizing stuff as you go along, and that's just the way it works. So this is going to be our third episode of the Tulip series, and so the first one was our introduction with all the expectations, right? And the beginning of the historical points of interest, which dealt with the pre-Pelagian era, and then last week we talked about Pelagianism, Augustine, and Monergism and Synergism. So today we get to get we get to get to the good stuff: <laughs> Semi-Pelagianism, which uh, becomes quite interesting in modern discussions uh but it's important and so we're gonna have to talk a little bit about the limitations of the Council of Orange as well so let's go ahead and jump right into it remember if you're a patron you have access to the full show notes of this whole series as they as it comes out and you can help support Christ the Cure and get that perk at the same time by going to patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure so looking at semi-Pelagianism now we talked a little bit about how and Pelagianism scholarship makes some of the topic difficult, but because the doctrines of Pelagianism were condemned, it makes all the discussion around who Pelagius was a lot easier to deal with, because we can just say, well, you know, Pelagius himself wasn't actually Pelagian as it was condemned, but the doctrines were still condemned, so it really doesn't matter. So when it comes to semi-Pelagianism, it is just as difficult. I read I read a lot and I listened to a lot and it was a little bit of a pain to be honest. And so I'm going with what I was able to find and summarize because really this was just to kind of get oriented. It wasn't supposed to be a long discussion. Like we're not supposed to be sitting on the historical discussions as much as um, you know, some might want us to, but so it, Regardless, it has been argued by scholarship that, like with Pelagius, those who were charged with semi-Pelagianism were not actually semi-Pelagian. Okay. Um, further aggravating our modern discussions is what we typically find being condemned as semi-Pelagianism is not often even reflective of what semi-Pelagianism was in its historical context. Okay, so that, that just makes it a lot more difficult. And this is particularly the case when it comes to the Reformed tradition, which, you know, if you're listening, you, you should know by now that I come out of that tradition. I'm a particular Baptist. Um, and so this becomes more complex because often Reformed literature has equated synergism with semi-Pelagianism. And likewise, my tradition tends to equate resistible grace as synergism. And so we talked a little bit about the difficulties between synergism and monergism in the last episode. But that means that ultimately for many, semi-pelagianism is simply resistible grace or synergism. And that that can't be that can't be equated. Semi-pelagianism is synergistic, but not all synergistic systems are semi-pelagian. And that's really what it all comes down to. As long as you can sit there and say semi-plagianism does have resistible grace included and is synergistic, but not all synergistic or resistible grace systems are semi-plagianism, then you're golden. That's really the the key, I think. Anyway, um, so with that said, we can proceed with talking about the traditional narrative around semi-plagianism, recognizing that those who are behind the term semi-plagianism, such as Cassius, may have been understood. misrepresented right it's also helpful to point out that the term semi-pelagian itself did not exist until either theodore beza or the lutherans in the 16th century um i'm not really sure of you know which one's which but daniel kurt in the history and theology of calvinism um says as much but the term came to be understood as the designation for those who were condemned at the council of orange which occurred in the fifth century right So let's talk about the general narrative around the semi-Pelagians. The semi-Pelagians sought a middle ground between Pelagius and Augustine. So if you don't know what that is, you have to go back to the last episode because that's where we talked about that. So the semi-Pelagians acknowledge the reality of original sin and the necessity of baptism and grace for salvation, but they differed from Augustine's position in terms of how grace is distributed and the beginning of salvation, specifically in relation to conversion, when a person is converted. The semi-Pelagians taught that Christ died for all humanity, right? That all people were called to salvation, and that God created humanity with a free will, but also an innate inclination to do good. This included the ability to discern between good and evil, to have you know piety towards God, and the ability to seek God. And so, going back to Augustine for Augustine, these gifts of the freedom of the will and the inclination towards spiritual good had been lost in original sin, and everything that pertains to eternal life comes from grace, opposed to a person's nature. To the contrary, the semi-Pelagians argued that in every human being, there is a principle of good, a gift of nature, so it's still a gift, along with an incipient faith the beginning stages of faith and with that the ability to turn to god with prayer and so the semi-pelagians taught that man can move in his will and meet grace for salvation they were synergistic right holding to a cooperation for conversion man cooperates with grace for conversion but they had a modified anthropology anthropology is the doctrine of man And this modified anthropology, again, said that man can move in his will to God's grace apart from an enabling grace. They would argue that this ability is still a gift, as the freedom of will is a gift of creation, and this gift allows a person to meet the gift of Christ. To summarize, the semi-Pelagians taught that men, by the gift of creation, were able to exercise goodwill towards God apart from grace. Orton Wiley defines it simply as, quote, it held that there was sufficient power remaining in the deprived will to initiate or set in motion the beginning of salvation, but not enough to bring it to completion. This must be done by divine grace. And that's in Christian Theology 2.103. Or put another way, quote, the semi-Pelagians insisted that human beings cannot be saved apart from the supernatural assisting grace of God, but the fallen human will is not held in bondage to sin It is not completely disabled by sinful corruption. Human beings can, unaided by grace, take the first step towards salvation. And that's in uh, Peterson and Williams, Why I'm Not an Arminian, page 36. And then another quote for good measure, quote, "...in semi-Pelagian synergism, human beings are the initiators of faith. Grace is responsive to our search for God and the good, and God helps those who help themselves." And that is also from Williams and Peterson. Now, a difficulty is that there's a different anthropology. Because by the time, you know, we have Augustine and these individuals agreeing that man in his will cannot move towards God apart from some type of grace that comes before and repairs the will so that the will can move towards God, right? Prevenient grace or um, preceding grace, whichever term you want to use there. That was the view. The semi-Pelagians changed that, saying, well, no, man has the ability or the will to make that move towards grace apart from any type of prevenient grace. That was the semi-Pelagian anthropology. So what gets difficult is that whenever we're talking about semi-Pelagianism, is that a key enough factor to say that someone today who holds something similar is a semi-Pelagian, or do they need to go further and also hold that semi-Pelagians must take the first step towards grace for grace to cooperate. Because you have a lot of individuals today who would say something like, man is free in his will today to move freely and choose grace, but grace has already been extended to them for them to choose. So the difficulty really is a matter of, is the anthropology, the doctrine of the human will, the key determining factor here? Or is it, whether or not man moves first and grace responds, or grace comes first and man moves towards grace, which really I think is kind of tomato-tomato. I think it's all sitting on the anthropology of how the, the doctrine of the human will is understood. And so whenever you meet someone on the ground floor who is who, a normal, modern, uh, United States evangelical, and they say, you know, man is born with this innate freedom of the will to choose or reject God— or to, you know, be born again in faith by responding to grace. That's synergistic, but it's also semi-pelagian because of the anthropology. Now, as you go in church history and you go to the medieval period with someone like Gabriel Bale, that semi-pelagian becomes more works-based because Gabriel Bale would come and say something like, you exercise your will hard enough and then God's grace will meet you. But only whenever you've exercised your will and you move in that direction hard enough, will God's grace aid you and help you complete it? And, of course, it being conversion, salvation. So, anyway, let's let's go ahead and move on. So, a key event in the discussion would be a local synod or council in Orange, which is in France, held in 529. Now, this event was actually prompted by a debate between the semi-Pelagians and Augustine on Augustine's understanding of predestination. This local council would uphold Augustine's position on the fall of Adam and the effects of humanity along with the necessity of God's grace and salvation, but this council did not uphold Augustine's exact position on predestination, nor did it uphold the concept of irresistible grace. So instead, as the Calvinist Herman Babnick summarizes in his Reformed Dogmatics, quote, "...the Synod of Orange accepted prevenient grace but did not decisively adopt Irresistible grace or particular predestination. And that's in Reformed Dogmatics, um, well, in the Bridge Edition, page 38 through 39. And we'll talk more about irresistible grace later on. But the key here is that the Synod of Orange allowed for a synergistic system that begins with grace and has this understanding of prevenient grace that comes before it repairs the will, where there is a synergistic cooperation for conversion. Again, not necessarily with two equal parties like we talked about in the last episode but with um, man being able to cooperate in terms of accepting grace actively arminian roger olson states quote semi-pelagianism was condemned by the second council of orange in 529 because it affirmed human ability to exercise goodwill towards god apart from special assistance of divine grace it places the initiative in salvation on the human side but scripture places it on the divine side and that is in Roger Olson, Armenian Theology, Myths and Realities, page 81. So the documents of the Council of Orange stress the corruption of human nature, including that man's will is enslaved to sin. The whole man has been corrupt and is without the ability to make a movement towards God without a prevenient grace. This prevenient grace is necessary and comes before and works in man to free their will in order that man is allowed or enabled to respond to God's gift of salvation. The canons of the council stress again that no sinner is able to come to God by his own will. Instead, God must first act, and this grace is necessary for conversion and good works. Um, Peterson and Williams are helpful again, and I'm going to quote them at length here. Quote, The Synod softened the Augustinian teaching into a gracious synergism. First, as stated above, the Synod did not endorse predestination, The canons explicitly reject predestination to damnation, that is, reprobation, but they are completely silent concerning predestination to redemption. Second, while the synod insisted that the initiation of faith begins with the work of grace, it suggested that human agency cooperates with the divine in order to produce redemption. This synergism is subtly but crucially different from that of the semi-Pelagians. While both see redemption as the product of both divine grace and human effort, the semi depict redemption as beginning with human agency, and the semi-Augustinian synergism of Orange reversed the sequence. Hence, a person's contribution to salvation is faithful response to God's grace. Grace is prevenient here in that it precedes human response. Okay, Nick, so why are we talking about this? Well, so this discussion is relevant for a couple reasons. First, the history of semi plagianism Acts as a caution to any new system that posits a position of corruption or depravity of human beings that does not include a notion of total inability of the natural man to respond to grace without some type of prevenient grace. Uh, this is why classical Arminians and Reformed Arminians and others in the Wesleyan tradition are quick to point out that many self proclaimed Arminians, or even those who are labeled Arminians by others, often fall into semi plagianism if not full-on Pelagianism, and are not a part of their tradition. And Roger Olson stresses that in his book, Armenian Theology, missing um, realities several times over, essentially. Of course, we will go more into depth on the classical Armenian position later, but to summarize here, the semi-Pelagians thought that salvation began with an inherent freedom of will unaided by grace, seeking God and God responding to that seeking. The Remonstrants, or the Armenians, of the 17th century, however, held that the human will was so corrupted by sin that a person could not seek grace without the enablement of grace. And this, is, of course, is in contrast to semi-Pelagians. Uh, and the Arminians taught that grace must go before a person's response to the gospel. Thus, it has been said that Arminians could be labeled as semi-Augustinians, but not semi plagians And that's um, Peterson and Williams, for example, they'll say the same thing in their book, Why I'm Not an Arminian, page 39. The second reason why this is important, which I've hinted at before, is that reformed polemics against Arminianism tends to equate semi-Pelagianism with a denial of irresistible grace. Such a mistake can actually be found in many folk that I admire, such as R.C. Sproul. And it's really just become commonplace for for this equation of semi-Pelagianism with a denial of irresistible grace to just... Ripple throughout reform literature when in fact again, even Herman Babnick says that the Council of Orange as much as as it's evoked That dealt with semi-Pelagianism put forward an idea of resistible grace But what we've typically find is that in reform literature There is a straw man put forward about Arminianism and Robert Godfrey in his exposition on the canons of Dort, which was The Dutch Synod against Arminianism states quote As the Reformation was a revival of biblical Augustinianism, so the Synod of Dort stands in the great Christian heritage that rejects Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. And Godfrey will go on to state about Arminianism because it holds to the fact that man can reject civil grace, that is, does not hold to irresistible grace. Quote, It sounds like a theology that tries to be as Augustinian as possible, but in the end remains semi-Pelagianism. End quote. And so you can kind of see where Godfrey has built that up, where resistible grace equals semi plagian and, you know, Armenians can try, but they're still semi plagian But Godfrey's logic here begs the question as to whether or not Lutherans, too, are indeed a theology that tries to be Augustinian as possible but fails to reach it, because Lutheranism rejects irresistible grace. And that would mean that Lutheranism is essentially semi according to Godfrey. But nonetheless, in Calvinist literature, what we find more often than not is, again, equating Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism with little distinction between those who defected from classical Arminianism and classical Arminianism itself today. So this is this is to say that we can't just call anyone who's not a Calvinist an Arminian or a semi-Pelagian, right? We, we have to respect that those things are different to begin with, and that to conflate them would be essentially the same thing as calling all Calvinists hyper-Calvinists or all Calvinists fatalists. So ultimately it needs to be stated that Arminianism And its original articulation, minimally, was not semi-Pelagianism. Further, a denial of irresistible grace is not inherently semi-Pelagian. There is one more issue, and I was kind of debating whether or not I was going to go into it, um, but there is a difficulty with the polemics on semi-Pelagianism, irresistible grace, resistible grace, and the Council of Orange. And that difficulty lies in three points, essentially. The first one is that this was a local synod of orange it was not ecumenical while the pelagian controversy was settled at an ecumenical council as well as its local discussions at the council of ephesus synod of orange was local so it wasn't ecumenical pulling that card opens up a whole can of worms which local councils are authoritative and which aren't it's like so that becomes an issue second the the doctrines in the canons have disagreements with stuff that we would hold So some of the things that they affirm in their canons, go look up their canons, read through them, you would likely not hold if you're a Reformed Baptist or even a Presbyterian. Thirdly, that, again, distinction between the the polemics used of, well, you know, to say this, you're semi-Pelagian, but the Council of Orange affirmed resistible grace is just a whole different can of worms. So there has to be consistency here. So what do I say about the Council of Orange? The Council of Orange acts as a, caution for anthropology i think that's the safest bet whenever we're talking about this since that was the key difference so whether or not you find that to be a valuable opinion that's kind of where i came out of everything whenever i was reading through it because when i was reading through the canons, i was like well i don't believe that i don't hold to that so how can i go and turn around and say well you know you you have to you have to listen to orange it's a great cautionary tale but then you start looking at the church in the East and the East really didn't have an issue with semi Now they're not semi-Pelagian in practice because they believe that grace, that everything is of grace and that grace comes before uh, man's ability to um, come to grace, but they're not as, uh, hmm. they're not as articulated in that, but after doing a lot of digging, they would essentially say that. Um, but that wasn't an issue for them. So the semi thing was not an issue for the East. And so it seems to be where you can't say it's ecumenical and you can't you can't claim it for the reformed tradition based off of the things that it does allow. Um, and so I'm not sure how much value the Synod of Orange has as an appeal. That said, saying this adds caution to the doctrine of this anthropology that allows for an inherent will that is free to move without some type of enabling grace because especially every system in mainline Christendom has affirmed that grace must come first. And you can go, you know, look into how Catholicism deals with the Council of Orange. They they say that they uphold it. I, I haven't looked into that. But the main point is that all have understood semi-Pelagianism as off the table. So there is caution in the fact that there is this Ecumenical awareness that grace must come first, but there's just not a canon condemning semi-plagian anthropology. So that that's kind of the the difficulty with the subject as a whole. So we have a few minutes left. Let's see if we can get through a little bit of the Reformation history. Let's see if we can get through. My Luther section is pretty brief, so let's talk about that. Um, the Reformation history. Now, during the periods leading up to the Reformation, there were schools of thought that were semi-Pelagian. Uh, and this is especially found in the scholastic theologian Gabriel Bale. Gabriel Bale and William of Ockham would teach, and I'm going to summarize a great deal here for the sake of you know not going into the weeds, they would teach the position that if a sinner did his best according to his own natural powers, God would give him grace, which really amounted to like a neo-Pelagianism and it would actually be Gabriel Bale who would elicit Luther's discussion on justification and the bondage of the will with the help of Luther's associate Philip Melanchthon. So, a an important discussion would actually be in 1524 when the scholar Erasmus, who is famous for his Greek text of the New Testament, wrote a work called The Freedom of the Will. In this work, most seem to take the position that Erasmus adopted a semi-pelagian position while some argue that Erasmus upheld the Council of Orange. For the sake of ease, I'll be taking the former predominant position that he takes a semi-Pelagian position. I read through it, and I got mixed signals, to be honest. Um, But regardless, Erasmus addressed Luther's Augustinian theology of sin and grace, and in this work, Erasmus argued that salvation was a shared work of human free will and divine grace. So on the one hand... Erasmus sought to say that the human will was ineffective to do good, but had enough power to meet grace. So it certainly sounds semi-plagian. And then you can get a summary of that by, um, Cotwright Charles, Luther and Erasmus, the debate on the freedom of the will, if you want to read more on that. Now, Erasmus argued that grace was essential, but man could meet it or reject it at any point. And it would be in 1525 when Luther would respond in his work, The Bondage of the Will, where Luther would restate Augustinian theology, quote, sometimes going well beyond Augustine. For instance, when Luther said that God's sovereignty in itself excluded human free will, he went beyond Augustine. All Augustine ever said was that the fall of Adam had excluded free will in spiritual matters. Luther's view would mean that not even before he sinned could Adam have had free will, since God's sovereignty operated before as well as after the fall. And that's 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, Volume 3, page 137. These issues would lead to every Christian party involved in the era to reaffirm anti-Semi-Pelagian stances, right? And this is across the board, kind of what I said before. Further in line with what I've said earlier is that even the Catholics in the Counter-Reformation, according to Catholic scholars, um, reaffirmed the Council of Orange, and they say that this can be seen in the Council of Trent, Chapter 5, Session 6, Canon 3, where Trent states, quote, if anyone says that without the predisposing inspiration of the Holy Ghost and without his help, man can believe, hope, love, or be repentant as he ought, so that the grace of justification may be bestowed upon him, let him be anathema, end quote. But like I said, uh, I have not thrown, you know, my my ducks in that pond of that debate. That's not a saying. I don't know why I say things like that. But I don't, I'm not sure about how Trent, Orange, and those dynamics work out. But the point is that by the time of the Reformation, everyone was reaffirming anti semi stances. So that's it for this week. Next week, we'll talk about Calvin and Arminius. And then that should wrap up our historical points of interest before moving on to our meat and potatoes. God bless you all, and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.